All right, if you want to turn to Psalm 73, we're going to be there. Finished up Psalm 103 last week, took three weeks through Psalm 103. We're going to cover all of Psalm 73 today. So we spend the summer months going through some psalms. Um, I've quoted from, referenced Psalm 73 on a number of occasions. If you haven't read this one in a while, you'll probably recognize it just from from that. Uh, But we've never fully gone through it. Uh, It's a psalm that offers many encouragements and comforts um, to God's people, especially when we are dealing with things like discontentment, envy, uh, and doubts about God's goodness. It's, it's a very unique, uh, but a, a, a very comforting and encouraging psalm. Um, you know what? We haven't prayed yet. Let's pray. Well, we did pray then, but let's pray before we get into God's word. Um, Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would speak to us now uh, through your word. Um, we come to you knowing that you, that you have told us that your word is powerful and effective, living and active, and able to, to accomplish your purposes in and through us. Um, we are not merely trying to understand it and gain knowledge, but we are, trying, we are trusting you to work in us and change us um, as your spirit works in us through, through these words. It is a life-giving word, um, and we need life. We need you to do more than we can ask or imagine in and through us. And just pray that you would do that now through your word, individually, as a church. Um, build us up. We come from various places in life, uh, discouraged, frustrated, um, lonely, afraid, also rejoicing, feeling various emotions with various questions. And we thank you that your word meets us in all of these places and and pray that you would uh, do that today. Um, Pray that you would be seen and be held clearly through your word. In your name, amen. So we're going to jump right in. uh, The first three verses. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So that first statement there positions and frames this whole psalm, what it's about, where it's going. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is, as you'll you'll see, this is what the psalmist is clinging to, is wanting to believe to be true, Despite how things currently seem, despite what his eyes see and his emotions feel, the, the fundamental issue here that is at hand is, is God good to his people? Is it worth belonging to God? Is faithfulness to God worth it? Or would it be better to forsake God and go belong to the, the godless, the arrogant, the proud, etc.? Now, when it says good to Israel, this is just a way of referring to God's people. God had chosen to first reveal himself to and through the people of Israel as he gave them laws, 
commands, as he spoke to them and led them and protected them and disciplined them and all of this, as he was doing all of this, they were meant to be witnesses of God and his goodness to all of the nations. But his ultimate purpose in doing this was to eventually reveal himself and prepare the way for Jesus, who would be God's ultimate revelation and God's salvation for the whole world. And so to belong to the people of God, who this psalm is talking about, is to belong not to the Israelites, but to belong to Jesus through faith. We become the people of God through Jesus. So the question is this, is God good to his people? And this is a question we are all asking. I think that's safe to say. It it is a question that we are wondering about whether we ever put it to words or not. As I have met with a number of you, um, I've heard this, this you've, you asked this question. How is God good when this is what my life looks like? How is God good when this is what I'm going through? When God has allowed, ordained for this to happen? When our marriage is this difficult? When I can't see myself ever getting married? When financial struggles are never-ending? When relational difficulties and tensions are, are tough? When you look at other people, and other people seem to have things so good, seem to have such a good, great life, through various tragedies, loss of a child, loss of a parent, how do you reconcile a good and sovereign God with this? How can God truly be good to his children when this is what my life looks like? And part of the encouragement of this psalm is that it gives us language for such times. The author readily admits such questions and doubts. He says, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had almost slipped. It's okay to say such things. It's okay to be honest with our doubts and our questions and our struggles and to put them to words even and to bring them to God. It's okay to state that sometimes living for God doesn't seem worth it. Sometimes it seems that it might be better to give up and go the way of the world. To admit that my faith has not always been strong and easy. Perhaps that time for you is right now. Perhaps you readily resonate with this. And feel like you're barely hanging on. Feel like your faith and strength and endurance are thin. Well, for one, find comfort in the fact that you are not alone. Just as we read this, even the human authors have felt this way. And the Bible that God has given us to reveal himself to us and to draw us to himself is not whitewashed. It it doesn't imagine that faith will always be easy, that we'll never have such questions and struggles or doubts. Feeling like this, thinking these thoughts, doesn't put you outside of God's people. It doesn't make you a failure. God is not surprised by such things. Now, the experience here this, in this psalm is a particular experience that causes one to question God's goodness. And that is the apparent prosperity and success and ease of living of arrogant, godless, and wicked people. He says in verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
Notice the parallel words used there, arrogant, wicked. Uh, Similarly, if you go ahead to verse 6, you have pride connected with violence. The Bible often describes those apart from God as both proud and evil. To be proud, or to be godless, is to be proud, and the godless proud are in the same category as the wicked. A couple of examples, Proverbs 21.4, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. Psalm 10.4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. In other words, there is a moral quality to pride. There is a moral quality to pride. Pride, in the sense of denying the existence and authority of God in the world and in, in our own life, is wickedness. Because morality begins with our relationship to and disposition to God. Morality begins with a relationship with God. And in denying God's existence, in ignoring his worth and his authority and his rights and his goodness, we are not only making a statement about him, we are also making a statement about ourselves. We are putting ourselves to some degree in the position of God, taking things that belong to him alone. In other words, there is a necessary arrogance that comes when we deny God. No matter how humble we might appear on the outside. This isn't to say that believers in God aren't and can't be very proud and arrogant too. Of course we can. But when we are, we are not actually believing what we claim. We are putting ourselves to some degree in God's position. Now, this is, of course, not how our world sees things. More and more, our world defines morality merely on the horizontal level, merely between humans. Just treat other people well. Don't do anything that hurts others. And, of course, God's understanding of morality includes that as well. You have the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. But if our morality is merely about how we treat other people, we don't understand why this world exists and why we exist and why others exist. Because we exist for God. We exist by God, through God, and for God. And so morality begins, doesn't end, but it begins on the vertical level between us and God. Hence why these people can be described as proud and wicked and, and godless. And the psalmist observes these people, this group of people. He sees that they're apparently succeeding in life, and he becomes envious. He's almost ready to give up on God's goodness. That's what he says, because he's envious of the arrogant. And he gives us a window into his feelings, into his envy. He puts it to words. So starting at verse 4, he goes into... Imagine you're reading his journal as he's writing these things out. For they, the, the wicked, the, the proud, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. So physically they're prospering. They're well-fed and agile. They apparently escape many of the pains of life. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their, is their necklace. 
pride seems justifiable and right to them because they're not stricken like the rest of, the, of mankind. They don't deal with the normal troubles of life. Now, there's a lesson here for us. The various difficulties and pains and losses and sorrows that we experience in life, in God's providence and grace, help keep us humble. Help keep us dependent on God. In this fallen state, we, where we are tempted towards sin and godlessness, complete ease of living and constant success would greatly tempt us toward pride as much as we, we want those things. And we will one day have those things. But in this state, we, if, if all we had was success and ease and comforts and pleasures, we would both most likely be very proud. We would think that we can depend on ourselves and our ability to get on just fine, apart from God. And so don't miss the opportunity that troubles bring to make you more humbly more fully, more contentedly rely on God. Don't miss the opportunity that troubles bring. Of course, it's hard to, th- hard to think of that in the moment right away, but prepare yourself now to see the trouble that God allows, ordains to be a means of leading you to rely more fully on Him. Second half of verse 5, violence covers them as a garment. So just like pride, because everything seems to succeed for these people, they, they can seemingly justify violence. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies, foolishness. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. So just a picture of violence and pride, of scoffing, of mocking, looking down on others, tearing others down. But they don't stop there. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. So not only do they speak down and put themselves above other humans, but they also speak against God. Um, If you're reading the NIV translation, it says their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. So they, they have an astoundingly great pride with no checks, limits. They live as if they were the greatest authority on earth and beyond. Verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. Now, if you have a distant translation, it, this verse is, is, is notably difficult to interpret, um, but it probably means something, that, uh, something like, in speaking great boasts, as these people do, many people are drawn to them. And they they drink deeply of what they're saying. And so they're very popular, attractive, influential, even respected. We are not without numerous examples of this in our day. Um, Lots of people can become famous, become powerful, become influencers. And it often helps if you speak highly of yourself and put others down. You hire a social media director or marketing firm to help you make much of yourself and make you appear better than everyone else. Verse 11, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? So in this position, you must downplay 
or deny God's knowledge and sovereignty and justice. Because here you are going your own way, denying God, and everything's going well. God apparently doesn't care, doesn't see, or isn't even there in the first place. This is what you must believe, whatever you claim to believe, in the position of the proud, wicked, and godless. How can God know? And then, starting in verse 12, the author sums up what he sees and how he feels about it. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. So, faithfulness to God often comes with hardship. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So in light of all this, as the author is observing the successes and ease of the wicked and godless, in light of all this, it seems like verse 1 is a lie. God good to his people? It seems like a cruel deception. God is not good to his people. The wicked have more success than the godly. There seems to be no consequences for denying and rejecting God and living for yourself and making great boasts. And in this, there seems to be injustice, right? That's, that's the nature of this cry because there is an apparent lack of justice, lack of fairness, lack of rightness. You know, if, if every act of wickedness, if every boast made against God and rejection of God was immediately re- met with divine intervention and justice, we would not really feel this way. It would not be very attractive to want to go that route. But as it is, the God-fearer, the pure in heart, is diligent to, to stay faithful regardless of the consequences regardless of whether it pays or not, and often it doesn't always pay, at least in the moment, and we feel that we are stricken. And yet, here these people are, not only do they not have to deal with the trials and difficulties of faithfulness, but they also seem to succeed as a result. And so we begin to go down this path that the author does. Is it worth it? What if I just chose to not be concerned to obey God anymore, but to do whatever I want? What would it look like to just follow every longing and lust and desire that I have? What would it be like to do what I know to be wrong and just not care, and to give in to anger and bitterness and unforgiveness, to forsake gathering with God's people, to forsake confessing sin, to forsake God's word as a guide in my life? What would it be like to no longer patiently wait on God, but just take things into my own hands? Would this be better? Surely you have had such thoughts. Surely at least such thoughts have come into your minds. And there is part of us that finds them attractive, desirable, no matter how godly we may be. And that's what this psalm is for. It teaches us what to do in those moments. Because notably, 
The psalm does not end there at verse 15. In other words, while we are welcomed and invited to honestly, authentically confess, bring our complaints out into the open before God, we are called to do more than that. God wants us to be authentic and honest, but he doesn't want our honest emotions and thoughts and interpretation of things to have the final word. He wants us to bring them into the light of his truth. He wants us to feed our life, our experience, our thoughts and emotions, the truth of who he is. And that's what the author begins to do in verse 16. Verse 16, but, so change of direction here. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, like to understand the justice, the fairness in all of this, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. So the truth begins to break through when the author goes into where God is proclaimed and worshipped. Apart from God's revealed word, apart from what God has said about himself and ourselves and the world, it is a wearisome, maddening task trying to make sense of things, trying to see the value of doing what is right and living for God. If faith and faithfulness and righteousness are going to seem worth it, then we must hear and believe what God has said. Our great need is to see and interpret reality in light of God's word and in light of God himself. Then begin, things begin to make sense. You might say that not letting God and his word interpret our life is like trying to live in a unending virtual reality. You put on the glasses and you live in a false world. And if you do this long enough, it can seem real. If you do this long enough, your emotions and your moods and your thoughts and goals are caught up more and more with what is going on in that fake world than what is going on in the real world. And as much as you might know in your head that it's not real, it feels real. It feels like that is what is most exciting and urgent and important. Similarly, we get lost in a false world, a false reality, when we forget God and his truth. When we think that what we see, what our eyes tell us, is the sum of reality. And it's not that we need to be brought out of this world, it's that we need new glasses. It's that we need to go into the sanctuary of God and see the true state of things. See how things really are and allow our emotions and our thoughts and our goals be led and fed by God's word. This is part of what we do on Sunday mornings and as we gather throughout the week. We, we are removing the virtual reality glasses 
and seeing the world aright. Reminding ourselves of what is truest, what is really true, but also what is really valuable, what is most precious and, and good and worthy. Reminding ourselves that yes, God is good to his people, God will be just, that this world was made by God, through God, and for God. And that one day every knee will bow. And part of this shift in seeing the world as it truly is, in light of God's world, is seeing the true end of things. Seeing how things will be in the day to come. To judge the present accurately, we have to see the end. For a perhaps silly example, an ice cream cone may appear good and delicious, but if you find out that it's laced with poison, you no longer see it as good and delicious, and you, I would hope, don't eat it. Godlessness may seem good and desirous, but when we find out that it leads to ruin and destruction and terrors, being despised by God, well, that changes things. That should compel us to, to be content with God and find our life with God. Now, perhaps you find some of this language in there a bit jarring. Are, are we to really wish such ruin on all those outside of God? Are we to be even thankful? I mean, that's how it reads, right? To be thankful and comforted by such things and to worship God? That such ruin comes on the godless, wicked, and proud. Well, on the one hand, we should desire the repentance of all people. We should desire that all would come to know God as God and find his grace. This is a good desire. God desires this. God is glorified in showering his grace on all who would come to him. But at the same time, we are meant to find comfort in the promise that those committed to a godless, arrogant, and evil existence, and who never turn from that, will find justice. They will find that God does in fact know, that the Most High does have knowledge. They will find that their pride and their claim, claim to the heavens and the earth was, the fall, was folly of the worst kind. And so this is a promise that there will be justice in the end, and it is meant to bring comfort to God's people. It is meant to empower our perseverance and patient endurance, especially when we begin to wonder, is it worth it? Is God good to his people? This is written for our comfort. The evil will get their due. The godless will get their due. The proud and arrogant will get their due. And God will be praised. And all God's people will cry with confidence, truly God is good to Israel, to all those who are pure in heart. And this is something by faith that we can even begin to proclaim now. So having gone into the sanctuary of God and seen the true end of things, seen the end of the wicked, the psalmist begins to find comfort and assurance. Last section here from verse 23. Nevertheless, I 
am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So here is the truest truth. The, the VR glasses are off, and we see things clearly. God is good to his people. Those who fear him rightly, who seek him, the pure in heart, are continually with God, continually led by God, held by his right hand. He guides us with his counsel. Instead of being set on a slippery slope headed towards ruin, we have God leading and protecting us and promising to work all things together for good. And this is true even when we find ourselves in a position like the psalmist, even when we find ourselves wrestling, doubting this. Um, in the verse just before that passage, in verse 22, he says, I was brutish and ignorant like a beast towards you. So I was like a creature. He was not at his best. He was not a picture of, of faithfulness or a picture of having it all together. He was like a beast. And then he says, yet, nevertheless, at this moment, I am with you. God is with, it, uh, with us at all times. Leading, strengthening, equipping, working, comforting, listening, in joys and sorrows and peace, and chaotic and mundane and maddening. He is near. And then afterwards, you will receive me to glory. So the end of God's people is, is good, is glorious. God will delight in them. They will be his. He will be theirs. They will experience his joy. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We have this great hope. And because of all of this, because of these truths and promises, we can say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. This is a proclamation that there is nothing more valuable than having God himself. Where the psalmist finds his great hope and comfort is not in getting all of the prosperity and success and ease of the wicked, but in finding God and knowing who God is to him. Getting God himself. He says, even if my flesh and my heart may fail. So even if throughout this life I deal with continual trials and difficulties, and, and the godless continue to succeed, this is better. Being near God is worth it. Having the promises of God is worth it. Being far from God is never worth it. Now, it's important to note that being in this position, being resolved that there is nothing on earth more desirous than God, involves an act of the will. This is 
choosing to hear and believe what God says and clinging to that and continuing to cling to that by faith. He says, I have made the Lord God my refuge. You and I must decide to make the Lord God our refuge when this is easy and when it's hard. This doesn't just happen to us. We don't just, left to ourselves, end up trusting in God and waiting patiently on Him. This involves an act of the will. And this psalm helps us with this. Again, on the one hand, this psalm gives us the freedom to honestly, authentically come to God and say, this is what I experience, this is what I feel, these are my my thoughts and my questions. But on the other hand, it calls us to bring all of this into the sanctuary of God, into the light of who God is, of God's truth and his presence. Being honest and authentic is not the ultimate goal. It is in our world, today, often, but it is not before God. We can honestly and authentically forsake God, and there's nothing honorable about that. God is not pleased that you are merely being true to yourself when you deny that he is God over your life. No, honesty and authenticity have value when combined with faith and faithfulness. When our ultimate trust and authority is in God and his revealed truth, rather than our personal interpretation of things, when, when we trust God more than ourselves. And so what this psalm is ultimately about is clinging to the truth that God is good and being content in that, being content with God and his goodness. Because if we don't believe that God is good, no matter how orthodox our beliefs, our doctrines may be, we will find it hard, nearly impossible, to be content with God. I said the last couple of weeks as we were going through Psalm 103, we worship things that we know to be good. If you find yourself praising something that you don't think is good, you're probably not being very honest. Similarly with being content. If we are to be content in God, we have to know that he is good. And this fight to believe that God is good is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Any true worship of God comes from some faith, some knowledge that God is truly good. God is not looking for cold, begrudging, forced worship, but joyful worship that flows from our hearts. And so we always ought to be examining ourselves for the the pockets of our lives that we continue to doubt and be unsure of God's goodness and feeding those things with the truth. And ultimately, this should lead us back regularly to the cross. God's goodness is seen most clearly in his coming into the world he created in the person of Jesus and living and dying, personally suffering, dying and bearing the judgment that our sin deserved. As unjust and unfair as the temporary successes and eases of the godless wicked are, the death of Jesus in our place is more unjust and unfair. 
And instead of trying to make sense of all the injustices of the world, I don't mean that we shouldn't try to do something about them, but instead of trying to make sense of all of them, we should look at the cross, where God died for the unjust and the ill-deserving, such as you and I, where God revealed himself to be the good and gracious Savior. And really, as you go through Scripture and all, you see all of the testimony and explanation of what God did in Jesus, of the cross, it's all trying to get us to see that God is fundamentally good. It's all trying to convince us that God is truly good. And there will be experiences and observations and temptations in this life that seem to call this into question. I mean, we have evidence of that in the Bible. It won't always be readily apparent how God's goodness is compatible with this or with this, whatever we see, whatever we feel. But again, this is why we need God's Word continually speaking to us, and especially the gospel. This is why we need God's promises to cling to. This is why we need one another to remind us, remind ourselves of these things. And again, this is the big reason why we're here today, why we gather in the various ways that we do, to put on Take off the false world glasses and to see things rightly. Let's pray.